Now, find 2 Samuel, okay? Find 2 Samuel. Let me kind of introduce, because we haven't talked for a couple weeks, what we're doing. We're going to go to 2 Samuel 7. What we're going to do between now and Easter, and then a little bit beyond that, okay? So March, April, and May. We're going to look at how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what was predicted about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay, so we'll be kind of all over the place. It's not a deal where we're studying 2 Samuel or any of that kind of thing. We're going we're gonna to be all over the place. Uh, so let me give you, if you want to write in your notes, next week we're actually going to be in Psalm 89, in Isaiah 9, one of my favorite Isaiah chapters, certainly, in prophetic chapters. We'll be in Luke 1 and Matthew 1. Okay, we'll, we'll have a couple of passages from the Old Testament maybe, or one, like we do today, and then we'll, we'll look at some fulfillment of it. But today we're going to kind of set all this up. Now, what I would ask you to do, this week began the season of Lent, what I would ask you to do is use, maybe we can use our time together as a, as a help to you in preparing your heart uh, this Lenten season for Easter, okay? Um, is there any better subject than studying Jesus? There is none. And so um, uh, let's, let's enjoy, I think I'm going to enjoy the study. I hope you'll enjoy being um, with, uh, together with me, you know, kind of going through this. Now, you know, um, a lot, um, we study a lot or we, we kind of talk a lot. I mean, if you watch uh, political TV or any of that kind of stuff, we, we talk a lot about what the ideal leader looks like. And, and frankly, you know. I'm not sure I've ever met one, but but um, um, but I, I'll tell you this: this was uh, in the in the early '90s. We were living in Kentucky, and Rhonda's dear uncle died suddenly in Missouri, and and um, we drove out here to uh, be here for with the family and for Rhonda's mom, it was her brother, and um, um, they were um, kind of near Joplin, where where the folks are now, and uh, so we came out here to be with them and to be a part of that service. My mom and dad drove um, to Joplin area, kind of to be near us, because anytime we had our kids around, uh, you know, they were three and a half hours away, they were going to do that instead of being, you know, 15, 18 hours away. And um, so we met there, and, and uh, we kind of grieved with the family over that couple of days, and then we were leaving to go back to Kentucky for the weekend, and um, uh, we stopped at a place um, on the highway to have breakfast before we left. And as we kind of got started with breakfast, um, everything kind of shut down. It was kind of interesting. The, the place kind of got quiet, although it was, it was bustling. And uh, it was kind of a truck stop type place. And uh, we noticed that, you know, the coffee was getting cold and there wasn't any waitress offering to help us. And thinking, what in the world's going on here? Before long, we saw all these buses pull in the... In the um, uh, in the parking lot, and um, there were, uh, Troy, there were state police cars everywhere you could look, blocking up, and we're thinking, what in the world is going on here? And before we knew it, a helicopter landed, and um, and um, this entourage gets out, there's all kinds of stuff going on. I finally flagged down a waitress and said, what in the world's going on here? And what happened was, then Vice President George H.W. Bush was making a campaign stop at the truck stop where we were having breakfast okay now uh 
so we, we got to meet him, got to talk to him for a minute. Now, Jake wrote a report. Jake's six or seven years old. He writes a report saying, you know, he met, he, he met the president. At that, at that time, he wasn't the president. He was the vice president. And nobody in school believed him, you know, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, my mother uh, was a Dole supporter right then, which was interesting. And he asked her, he said, uh, he said, who you, who you um, going to vote for? And she said, well, I've kind of been following Bob Dole. And, and she, he kind of wrangled with her a little bit about that. And, of course, mom was so wise, it was funny. And he, he hands her, he, he, they were, these were, they were uh, paper menus that we were using. They allowed you to take them with you, and it was kind of a little artistic thing. And uh, so she handed that to him. And and said, would you, would you autograph my menu? And, and, and he did. And he said, you'll have to hold my coffee. And he's holding the coffee in a cup about like this. And, and he, says, um, he says, you can take a sip if you want to. It's got cream and sugar in it. And, and she said, no, I take mine black, thanks. And uh, anyway, they had this little, and, and uh, so, but what I noticed about that moment, and I'm, I'm in my 30s at that point, he looked presidential. You ever been around a leader that just looked like a leader? Tall, uh, big. Johnny was a big guy. I mean, you know, he just looked like if, if, if you were in a room full of people like this, he would stand out. It made it easier to vote for him later on in some ways, you know. Now, whether or not you had political leadings, there was a guy in the room that just looked like a leader. Now, we're going to meet some people today who, some who look like a leader, some who didn't, okay? Wouldn't it be wonderful to find the perfect leader? Much of the Old Testament focuses on the failures of the leaders of God's people. By the time we get to the New Testament, people are asking, will will God ever send a leader who truly reflects God's greatness? And the prophets are answering, oh yeah. Okay? Will there ever be the perfect leader? And the prophets are saying, hang on, he's coming. All right? Now, um, today's text in, in 2 Samuel 7 marks really a high point in Old Testament history. Economically, um, politically, uh, and even in terms of the spiritual life of the nation, was at its zenith during the leadership of King David. And that's kind of what we're going to study today. Uh, Israel, um, uh, a generation before, had begged God to give them a king so that they could be like the nations around them. Isn't that interesting? I want something just like the people around me. Lord, give me what my neighbors have. That's exactly the prayer. It bugged Samuel, but he went with it because God told him to do that and anoints Saul as the first king over Israel. Uh, now, Saul was one of these guys, interestingly, who was like um, my acquaintance. I won't say my friend, although I'd like to call him a friend, George Herman Walker Bush, because he looked presidential in a nation of not all that tall people. He was a big guy. He looked like a leader, but he wasn't a leader. He disobeyed God willfully. And so Samuel then anoints David from out of his uh, father Jesse's clan. He's the youngest, the smallest, literally hidden in the backside of, of a sheep pasture somewhere, uh, so much so that they almost forgot about him when they're trying to find a leader from the family of Jesse. And uh, David is anointed king. 
David soon rises to prominence because he defeats Goliath. He wins other triumphs on the battlefield. And um, uh, so, but Saul becomes very jealous of him. And Saul, that's, he's still on Israel's throne, even, David, even though he knows that David is the next king. That's got to be an interesting deal. Um, he's still on Israel's throne. He thought he had a dangerous rival, so he tries to do away with him. And so imagine this scenario. David lives many years of his life in service to the king while running from the king. That's a lot of First Samuel. We'll read about that. In service to the king while running from him. Um, he never attempted to harm Saul directly. He thought that would be out of the Lord's will. Saul is uh, at, the real, at the very end of 1 Samuel. Saul is mortally wounded in battle, as is his son Jonathan. And Saul, um, in an attempt to keep from having to, uh, to be uh, tortured, falls on his sword, takes his own life. Uh, that's how 1 Samuel ends. It's a terrible thing. With Saul dead, Judah, David's tribe, anoints him as king, or they acclaim him as king. He, um, not the whole nation yet, but just Judah, okay, just this southern kingdom part of it, all right, just David's tribe, anoints him as king. Uh, David uh, continues to put together an army. He marches against the Jebusites in chapter 5, 6, and 7 of 2 Samuel, and the Jebusites have a wonderful walled city. It's a beautiful city. It's the, the city of Jebus. You're not, you're not going to find it on your map. Because David conquered the unconquerable city of Jebus and named it Jerusalem, the city of peace. And it becomes David's city. It's still called David's city, isn't it? Well, that was not in Israelite possession until David. All right? He built himself a palace. He makes Jerusalem his capital. All Israel soon affirms David as king. He builds himself a palace in Jerusalem, and to that city he brings the tabernacle that had been traveling in the wilderness for uh, you know, four or five hundred years. It was now settled in Israel. He brings that portable worship center to Jerusalem and sets it up as the headquarters for the worship of the nation as well. But as this chapter that we're going to read today begins, David thinks it's time to build God a house. He's built himself a palace. Now it's time to build God a house. And uh, God has got something to say about that. And that's what we're going to study about today. Bob, I missed you last week. Uh, you know what? Let's just, let's just have a little love fest here, buddy, from across the room. Would you go to verse 7? And read down through, I'm sorry, verse 4 and read down through 7. Thank you. Okay, this is a really interesting deal. Now, let's, let's start it by saying this. Notice that God doesn't speak directly to David. Could he have? Sure. Probably has before. 
certainly, uh, as I read the book of Psalms, it sounds like to me David and God are on first name terms, all right? But um, he goes to the prophet Nathan here and says, I need you to go to the king and we're going to report some things. So God doesn't communicate directly with King David in this story. Now, look at verse 3. We're going to back up from where Bob was um, there. Uh, and here, here, catch this. Nathan said to the king, go do that all is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now, what's in the mind of the king? He wants to build God a house. All right? He wants to build a temple. And he begins to plan it. He goes to Nathan and says, hey, guess what? I am going to build the greatest temple ever built to the Lord our God. Nathan says what? Go ahead. Knock yourself out. Uh, an old friend of mine used to say, bust your thumb. Yeah. I don't know what that meant, but that's what, that meant go ahead, something. All right. Now, it's interesting here that when God needs to deliver a message to the king, he's also got to correct the prophet. The king has gotten it wrong. All right. And he's going to go through the prophet. One of the reasons, at least, is he's got to correct the prophet, too. Okay. Uh, think about that for just a minute. Now, look at verse 5 again. David is guilty at least, I think, of presumption. Thinking God needed a place to live. He's got one, thought God needed one. All right. He's guilty at least of presumption. Now, let, let's catch this for just a minute. Um, the message that God gives Nathan to give him uh, is, is, is kind of twofold. First of all, it's an assurance. Nathan's, God says, tell him this. He calls David a servant. Do you catch that? And David has been a servant. Look at verse 5 again. Go and say to my servant David, thus saith the Lord. So he calls him, wouldn't you love it? I mean, is there any greater notion, uh, desire, than at the end of my life to have God say, my servant? That's what Matthew 25 is all about. Enter in. He calls David his servant. So there's nothing wrong necessarily here. He'd obeyed God. He was a servant. But not only was this a message going to be of commendation or of assurance to a servant, but it's going to be a message of correction. Now, I did some study in the ancient Hebrew. I'm not good at it, so I had to really, really struggle to get all this, okay? And uh, uh, John Fazard knows Hebrew. I, I don't know Hebrew. I just, you know, I know, I just know a little bit. And, um, and I can study it. The, the, the word literally translated, okay? It's a really strange word. It's hard to say. Ready? Here's the word that God delivered through Nathan. Uh-uh. I don't even know how to spell that, but that's what he said. Huh? Okay. Uh, in, in, in another language, it's nah. Okay. All right. He just says, no, God, don't, don't need it. Don't occupy your time with that. He just, his correction to David and to Nathan the prophet is no. Now, by the way, I really got bad on this next sentence. It's, I can't blame it on anybody. Uh, I was typing quickly, and I don't do that anyway. So you school teachers, forgive me, all right? That either needs to read, there is, there is an indication that neither David nor Nathan, or we need to say there is no indication that either David or Nathan. Okay, there's a double negative there. What it means is there is a, uh, what I want to get to, okay, the school teachers are loving that right there. 
uh, couldn't do that and, you know, and, and, and uh, tread on the memory of my mother, the school teacher. There's no indication in the Bible. Uh, Bob, go back and read verse 1 and 2 for us, will you? Yep, first of that chapter. David is planning. You know, he's got a legal pad. And he's looking out, you know, he's writing things on, saying, I need to do this, need to do this. Oh, you know what? I need to build God a place. He takes it to the prophet, and the prophet says, that sounds like a great idea to me. There is no indication, okay? Now, the Bible is tacit about some things intentionally. I'm not sure of it here. But there's certainly no indication that either David did I do that right this time? Either David or Nathan prayed about it. No indication that either one of them thought, you know what, we need to lay, lay this thing out to God, before God. Sounded like a good idea the, to the king and to the preacher, and they both said, knock yourself out, let's go do it. Bob? I think so. I've never done that before, have you? No. Huh? Now, now, one of the things that you're, you're talking about here is true. Both of these men were in touch with God, and you would think this would all be good, right? Well, now, they didn't pray, though, before they planned. God had deliberately designed his, this worship center that we know as the tabernacle, had deliberately made it portable. It was, had kind of this deliberate portability for almost 500 years. It was modest in so many ways, even though the, the fixtures of it were, um, were wonderful and, and golden and bronze and all that. So God here goes to the prophet and is going to call the king and the prophet on their presumption. God has never indicated He's never even hinted that he needed a house. God's fine. By the way, be careful. If you ever begin a sentence with God needs, just be careful. Okay? I've got a dear friend who is now in heaven. Who um, The great faith battle of his life was after losing a young daughter, a 20-something-year-old daughter and a young mother, uh, suddenly. The preacher at the, at the, at the uh, service for this young mother said, God needed her in heaven. God doesn't need anything, guys. Can I tell you that? And he certainly doesn't operate that way. You've heard that said probably before. That is terrible theology. And it's horrible to do to a family and a person. And, and my friend, the great faith challenge of his life was getting over that statement. I'm not sure he ever got over it till the day he died. Would, why would I want to serve a God like that? Okay? God doesn't need anything. And certainly here, God doesn't need a house. Now, often, and you can write this question however you want to write it. Here's how I wrote it. Often I need to stop myself before kind of following up on my plans and ask myself the question, is this the Lord's plan or just mine? 
Is this the Lord's plan or is it just mine? And I want you to go with me to Romans 12. And we're going to read the first two verses. Very familiar passage of Scripture, okay? Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. You remember, if I say, that, say a name, would you recognize it? Joseph Smith. Okay? Here's a guy who claims to have had a visitation from an angel. That's that golden guy on top of the, the uh, uh, Mormon tabernacle, okay? Mormon temple, all right? Moroni. He has a visitation from him. He gives him a book, okay, written in what he later claims to be Reformed Egyptian. Nobody's ever found that language. And he's given a Urim and a Thummim to uh, interpret it. But it's kind of a private visitation from this thing, and it tells stuff that's pretty fantastic to believe. Now, I want to be careful when I'm trying to interpret God's will that I'm just not doing what I want to do and handing it to God and say, would you please bless this? Listen to, if I need somebody with the NIV to read Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Who's got an NIV in front of you that would admit it? Okay, great. Some people don't like the NIV. Sorry, Sally. <laughs> okay, good. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, that's that translation of Romans 12, too. You've heard both of these verses probably a lot in your lifetime. But if I'm not careful, a misreading of that would make it sound like I can get myself in the spiritual position with this transformation of mind where I can hand my plans to God and say, approve this. Doesn't it kind of sound that way to you if you're not careful? The word dokimatsu, uh, which is, is used as test or approve here um, in Greek, uh, literally has part of its meaning is to bring forth good in us. That The idea here, the action of that verse is to bring forth good in me, to bring about a good uh, outcome in me. Not to cause God to do something here. All right? I've got to be really careful in this. It is not God's will that needs um, to be proven. It's not God's will that needs to be proven. It's me, isn't it? So I've got to be really, really careful as I hand my plans over to God that I'm not saying, okay, I've got this plan, I'm your guy. Test and approve my plan. <laughs> it seems kind of ridiculous when I say it, but don't we often do this? We make a purchase and then we say, God, I hope you're okay with it. We make a plan and then say, get on my team. Okay? Um, it just happens, doesn't it? And here, one of the great leaders of the Old Testament is being called on it, on his presumption. Now, let's read ahead. Somebody go ahead, if you would, please, and read 8 down through 16.
Thank you, Steve. Now, uh, let me read uh, once again verse 8 here. It's really important in the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. Now, what God is dealing with here is literally the insignificance of David. You're a sheep herder, and you became king, he's saying. He's not trying to put him in his place, but in some ways he is. The story of David's anointing underlines his insignificance. He comes from where? He comes from the pasture outside of a town called Bethlehem. That's Jesse's town. All right. Now, uh, I began to think about even that little town. Um, um, it's a one traffic light place, if, if a traffic light at all. John, I began to think about uh, sometimes my, my other favorite Texan, um, um, Cliff. I will call him sometimes when I'm in Texas, and I'll say, you know where I am? And he'll say, no, where are you? And I'll say, I'm at that town in Texas where there's a Dairy Queen. There's a Dairy Queen in every town in Texas. That's a big deal if you live in Moore now, because there's one down there. But there, aren't I right, man? There's a Dairy Queen in every town in Texas. And I'll, so I'll call Cliff and say, you know, I'm in that town where there's a Dairy Queen. I knew a guy who owned 67. 67 Dairy Queens. Well, there might have been a Dairy Queen in Bethlehem. I don't know. <laughs> Otherwise, it was kind of a backwater, insignificant place. And David was born the least in eight sons, in a little backwater town. His insignificance couldn't be more pronounced here. So what God is saying to him in verse 9 is whatever greatness David has, God has given him. What you and I have got to kind of deal with here is David is not going to be giving to God. God is going to be giving to David. What's he going to give him? He's going to give him a name. He's going to give him a dynasty. And that's kind of what we're addressing here today. Occasionally we hear that word dynasty. What do we hear it talking about typically? Do what? I still didn't hear it, sorry. Oh, ducks. Yeah, sorry, that one, that one slipped right over my head. Ducks. It is kind of a duck dynasty, isn't it? Roger had a duck dynasty long before those guys ever made the scene. Uh, I hear about it in terms of um, ball teams, you know. Um, um, in particular, you occasionally hear it talking about the Miami Heat these days because they've won two in a row, you know, that kind of thing. Is this a dynasty? When I was growing up in, in NBA, um, my favorite team was the Boston Celtics, and, and they had a dynasty going, you know. The, Bill Russell and John Havlicek and all those guys, you know, seemed to win almost every year, right? There's a dynasty there. Well, there's... God is going to give, God doesn't need David to give him anything. He is in turn, though, going to give him a dynasty, an everlasting dynasty. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. Was this promise fulfilled that was in 10? Now, the, the promise in 10 is that they will be settled in the land, okay, and have peace. Now, the truth is that that promise wasn't fulfilled to Moses, even though it was given to Moses. It wasn't fulfilled to Abraham, even though it was given to Abraham. But in many ways, it was fulfilled in David's day. <coughs> Excuse me. The question is, the peace that was promised, and, and probably the nation of Israel has never been more peaceful than in the days of David, but did, was the peace lasting? What I want to submit to you is, 
it lasted. The lasting peace never came about until we met David's son. And I'm not talking about Solomon. The one who was called by the blind man, son of David. That's when the kingdom of peace was was initiated. And he reigns today. I'm skipping ahead a bit, but you get my point. Now, David in verse 11 and 12, God is saying, here's what I want to do for you. Um, God will not build a, I mean, sorry, David doesn't need to build a house for God. And I put that in quotes kind of in my notes. David doesn't build a house for God because God is going to build a house for David. Now, let me explain those, that word used two different ways. God says, you don't need to build a house for me. In that sense, he's talking about the temple. Because I'm going to build a house dynasty for you. Catch that? The word house is kind of interchangeable here. It has several meanings, in at least those couple of things. Um, uh, God, more than his promise to Abraham, he never promised Abraham a king, although you could argue that the son of David is also the son of Abraham, right? But he never really promised him a king. He didn't promise Moses. You know, um, your son will be a king. And Moses himself wasn't a king. But he promises David, not only are you king over my throne, but your king's going to last. And you'll have a son who will reign forever. Now, here's the question. Was Solomon's kingdom eternal? Uh, There's some in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, down and through there. There's some interchangeable language that we've got to be careful of because God is going to make some promises about David's kingdom, but he's also going to, he's thinking future, all right? Solomon's kingdom was not eternal. In fact, Solomon hands the keys of the kingdom over to his son. Do you remember Solomon's son's name that he handed the keys over to? Rehoboam, Rehoboam. Okay. Rehoboam goes to his advisors, two groups of them, an older group and a younger group. The older group says, you better make peace. The younger group says, ah, let's, let's, let's uh, wipe them out. Let's, let's kind of uh, uh, go our own way and literally divides the kingdom in two. So Solomon's kingdom, although established, um, uh, gets divided even uh, in, in that next generation. So the question is here, what is this dynasty about? Was Solomon's kingdom eternal? No. The king who builds the true temple that's being talked about here is not Solomon. By the way, Solomon builds a temple in his lifetime, takes David's plan, and and David actually does all the procurement for it, most of it, and Solomon builds it, gets credit for building it in his lifetime. But I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 6. Would you do that just for a minute? Acts 7. I'm sorry, it's not in your notes. And I want you to to introduce you to part of the talk that Stephen is giving that gets him uh, stoned to death. We're going to go to Acts 7, verse 46. Would somebody read verse 46 through 48? Acts 7, 46 through 48.
Isn't that something? Cindy, would you go back to 13, same chapter? 713. Uh-huh. You know what? I gave you the wrong passage, but that's okay. It's good. It's all good. It's just not the one I need here. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. Stephen, one of the things that got Stephen stoned was he said, was he, they accused him of preaching against the temple. And here's where he's saying it, what Cindy read. God never did live in a house. For crying out loud, he certainly didn't live in a, in a goatskin temple or goatskin tabernacle, right? God lives in your heart, he says. Now, the kings that descend from David, in a sense, uh, all the kings of Israel would be called God's sons. And so he's going to talk about disciplining his son and that kind of thing. That, that's what you need to kind of keep in mind as you, as you read through that section. But the truth is that God's God is promising David a dynasty here, a kingly dynasty that will endure by God's promise. His dynasty is going to endure. So uh, Solomon makes lots of mistakes. Rehoboam makes even more, and on and on and on. Is there always a king in Jerusalem? No. The temples are built and torn down all the way till Jesus' time, (coughs) when finally the king who's sitting is not a descendant of David at all. Interestingly, right? And the temple that was built is built by that king who was an Edomite, not a descendant of David. But God says, your kingdom, this dynasty will endure. What I'm going to say to you is that God endures this, uh, the mistakes made by earthly leaders here His dynasty will endure by God's promise. Why? To get us all the way back to Bethlehem. There's got to be a descendant of David born in Bethlehem. That's what's important about the rest of Old Testament history, believe it or not. Now, I want to say two or three things and then we'll go. First of all, kingdoms may rise and fall. Temples in Israel were built. The first one was built by uh, Solomon, destroyed. Another one was built, destroyed. Another one was built, destroyed. Uh, Herod builds the one that Jesus worshipped in. It's destroyed in 70 AD. Will they ever build another one? I don't know. And frankly, I'm not sure I need to worry about that. Now, your theology, your approach to this may be a little different from mine. The point is, Kingdoms may rise and fall. Temples were built and destroyed. But he is the son of David. He is a king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. It won't be by military might that he rules. In fact, it will be by voluntary lowliness and humility. And he did, didn't he? That's the son of David. He won't... He won't Conquer this world by wars. Now, here's what goes in your blank. What God has done will never be undone. Not by war. 
not by man's skepticism. And when all is gone, he alone will reign. In this series, I want you to ask week by week yourself a question or two. Can I ask you to ask yourself a couple of questions as we study this Jesus who is the fulfillment of Scripture? First of all, do you know this Jesus? That's an all-important question. Can I, can I tell you? Do you know this Jesus? There's only one. Do you know this one? The one who is predicted. The one who came to the earth and, and lived and suffered and died and rose again. Do you know that one? That's the one you need to know. Secondly, this is a little more critical in some ways. Do you want him? Do you want him? Is that a silly question? I don't think so. Because I think some people desire kind of to know him, but they really don't want his influence in their lives. Do you want him? I'm going through a period of my life where his influence and his care and love over my heart is so pointed and marked and sweet that I wouldn't trade, despite some other things that are incredibly frustrating to me, I wouldn't trade what I have right now for anything in this world. Do you want Jesus? Here's the truth. You can have him. If he can have you, you can have him. If you'll give him yourself. God bless you. I'm going to love talking about this stuff. I hope you'll be with me. Let's go. Bless you.